hills, looking for a way out. And as I think of my husband, whom I love with all my heart, I realize he must still be asleep, and that it must be earlier than I thought, because by seven I know he'll be down here looking for me, worried that I'm not there beside him. He hates sleeping alone, but he needs his sleep, so I tiptoed out and came down to the kitchen, hoping that the fire would still be alight. I put a couple of logs on, but by the time it really got going, I must have nodded off. Sleep has always been my way out, my one escape. There were times when things got really bad, then I'd take a couple of pills and not wake up for 48 hours. Ozzy said I would sleep through a nuclear explosion. But I love my bed, love, love, love my bed which is where I'd be now if I didn't think I'd wake my husband with my cold feet. And as I look around the kitchen, my mind goes back to the kitchen where I grew up, the Brixton basement with its lino, the 50s glass-fronted cabinet, its miserable coal fire that was the only form of heat, and how everything in that house, apart from my father, was always dirty and how I thought that everyone lived like we did, that arguments were only ever settled by a fist in the face, that bailiffs were as likely to be outside the front door as the milkman, that smashing a light bulb into your brother's ear was a perfectly reasonable way to behave, that all fathers had guns. It was only when I got to be about twelve that I discovered other people's lives weren't like that. Chapter One Brixton My earliest memories of sitting on a wooden chair, watching some girls going through their dance routine in fishnet tights and silver shoes. I can't have been more than about two, but far from this being unusual, it was everyday life for me. The church hall where my father would always do those rehearsals is no longer there, though the church is there and the house that we lived, 68 Angel Road, has become one of a row of townhouse-style council flats. In the 50s and early 60s, Brixton was where all the variety artists lived. Comedians, singers, ventriloquists, acrobats. Variety, or vaudeville as they call it in America, was the only entertainment there was for ordinary people. And with the Brixton Empress and the Camberwell Palace being less than a mile away, Brixton was the hub. Over the road from us was a fire-eater and a juggler. A dog act, a man called Reg, lived in a caravan in a bombsite behind our road, and I used to play with his little girl. Our house was large and old, and at one time it must have been quite grand, but by the fifties the plaster was peeling off and once you got inside, everywhere was dingy and dirty and damp. Before I was born in 1952, my mother ran it as a theatrical digs and that's how she met my father. She was ten years older than him and divorced with two children. Her name was Hope Shaw, but she was always called Paddy because of her Irish background. Maybe my father saw her as a bit of a bohemian, his family were Russian Jews, who had arrived in Manchester around the time of the First World War. 
He was born Harry Levy, but changed it to Don Arden when he decided to make a career in show business. It's a name that says nothing about who you are or where you're from, a blank canvas. My father was a singer, and although popular with audiences, he was always in trouble with management. Things came to a head one night when he had a fight with the stage manager who had called him a Jew boy. It ended with them both rolling around the stage, kicking the shit out of each other, and the other guy falling into the orchestra pit. Don Arden was banned from performing in any venue owned by Moss Empires for two years. In order to make enough money to survive, he began packaging whole shows, which he would then tour around independent theatres where his name still held good. He did so well that when the ban was lifted, he never went back to performing. My father didn't dare tell his family he was married until 1952, when my brother David was born. Even then, his mother went insane. Sally, as everybody called my grandmother, never really accepted having a shiksa as a daughter-in-law. I can't remember a time when there wasn't turmoil within the family, fights between his mother and my mother, and then there was my half-sister Dixie, always some drama with her, different sorts of problems with my half-brother Richard. In fact, my father detested both his stepchildren, who by the time I was born were fifteen and ten respectively. But with both my parents involved in the business... They relied on Richard to babysit and Dixie to cook and make my clothes. The house in Angel Road was always overflowing with people. To bring in extra money, they continued to rent out rooms, mainly to other artists. The first room on the right when you came in was used as the office, and behind that was the sitting room where friends and business associates were entertained. My mother's pride and glory was a bar that she'd bought from the ideal home exhibition in Eld's Court, made out of wine barrels cut in half, which was stuck in the corner of every house we ever owned. School was about half an hour walk up Brixton Hill. The only teacher was Miss Mayhew, a survivor of the Titanic. It was tiny, never more than thirty children. We did our work in two rooms at the front. The playground was the garden. My mother took us for the first week, but then we were on our own, rain or shine, sometimes with a packed lunch, usually not. My mother was never an early morning person. I'd go to my parents' bedroom to ask for a shilling for my lunch, and it was like, for fuck's sake, Sharon, can't you see your mum sleeping? Brixton was a good place for kids to grow up, it was a poor part of London, which meant it was cheap. There was the market arcades under the railway line, full of little stalls. And then there were the Indian shops, with saris hung up outside the little entrances. All those amazing colours and strange foreign smells. My brother was very industrious in trying to find ways to make money. When it was Guy Fawkes night, he used to dress me up, put me in an old-fashioned pram... Stick me outside the pub and I'd be penny for the guy. Those were the good days. Bad days were when we were put in the coal hole. Whenever my brother or I misbehaved, my parents would lock us up there. The worst thing was the spiders, 
and the scuffling that David said were rats. My grandmother Nana lived in Presswich, a smart suburb of Manchester, and I absolutely adored her. She's probably the only woman I ever met who was bald, and to hide it, she had this terrible wraparound hairdo, a real Bobby Charlton. When we were out, Nana was a big one for afternoon tea at the Midland Hotel. She wore hats to cover it up. Whenever my parents were on tour in the north, they'd take us out of school and leave us with her. They didn't give a shit about the academic side of life. Being with Nana made me feel warm and safe. She was motherly. She would cook for me. She would tuck me up in bed. Everything in that house was scrubbed and cleaned till it shone. She couldn't have been more different from my other grandmother, who unfortunately I saw more of because she lived not far from us in Clapham. She'd been a dancer like my mother, and again like my mother she ran at theatrical digs. Dolly O'Shea had long white hair that she wore down to her shoulders, curled under and tied with a huge red satin bow. And she always had dark red lipstick like Betty Davis in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. She adored my brother, but she hated me. And if she'd have been Chinese, she'd have been the sort of person who'd have put the girls out to die. Religion was never a big deal in our house. My father used it only when it suited him. As a lot of other people in the business were Jewish, it was a way of keeping some people in and other people out, perhaps even my mother. In 1960, my father experienced the nearest thing he could get to a religious conversion. It was called rock and roll. In January...